Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is James J. Cassiello, Jr. I am the managing attorney of the Estate Administration Department at Cushing and Dolan over in Waltham. Uh, I tend to the deceased and not so recently deceased. Um, and I love estate and gift tax, as strange as that sounds. Um, I, you can call me Jim, Jimmy, Jimbo, hey there guy. I answered all of them. But um, my goal today here, you know, brief as the time is, is to just give you a, a rundown of the federal and Massachusetts state estate tax returns, the, the general regime, um, what, what is, you know, what's included in the estate. And then I've also prepared um, a sample, sample returns for mass and federal purposes that we can look at to, to see how you actually apply it to the forms and how those operate a little bit. Um, that said, I do, um, I, I love taking questions. It's a test of my knowledge. You know, um, can I answer your question as it comes in? I'm happy to do so. So just feel free to fire away at any point and I'll, I'll do the best I can with it. So I, um, I prepared an outline. I, I detest PowerPoint. So I'm sorry if you, you like PowerPoint, but that's not, I'm just not great at it. Um, I like a, a, a more wordy prosaic format. So I try to prepare uh, you folks some material to just sort of run through the, the highlights of the estate tax. And I'll try to follow that. And then I'm gonna, you know, reference the actual form 706 itself. That's the uh, federal return used. And the mass one is called the form M706. I also prepared an asset list. And if you're dealing with um, estate tax returns and estate administration generally, it's it's so critical to have something like this this asset list. Here, I'm even going to pop this up right now. That, that's how important this thing is. I'm going to put this over here. So this, this is my estate tax return, but this asset list right here. Um, my deceased person is named Daniel D. Decedent. I am full of terrible jokes, so I apologize in advance. But if you look at this thing, it might seem a little Byzantine when you start out, but what you're really trying to do is you want to find out everything an, a person had a property interest in um, and then, you know, understand how it was owned. And that's going to drive, you know, how much of the value is reported for estate tax purposes. And then it's going to determine how it passes after they die. You know, is it probate versus non-probate, uh, et cetera. All right, let's jump back to my ugly mug. Um, okay, so you know, at, at the outset, it's sort of, you know, what is the estate tax? Um, the estate tax is a one-time transfer tax on the, the privilege of transferring wealth to the next generation. Um, it's federally and in mass, it's due nine months after the date of death. So, you know, it's, it seems like a lot of time, but it can be, um, it can come up on you faster than you think, especially because oftentimes clients um, might not be ready to go talk to their estate administration attorney and their state tax return prepare right after someone dies, you know, obviously, you know, some kind of usually funeral services, mourning period, people just maybe aren't ready to do it. So you want to right away get a sense of well, how, how much time do I really have? Um, good news is this can be extended um, six months, both mass and federally, but in mass, you have to make a payment of 80% of the estimated estate tax balance, not even estimated rather, the final value of the estate. So that can be tricky because you're still waiting for sort of asset information to come in. So it's best to um, over, overpay in that sense. Um, at the beginning too, like what are, the, what are the filing thresholds? When do you have to actually file one of these tax returns? Um, federally, the current estate and gift tax exemption is uh, $11.58 million. Uh, when you hear a politician say it is the, the death tax and it's on small family farmers, you just you know, turn off the TV immediately because it's that's absurd. Um, the $11.58 million is a pretty big amount of money. Also, if you're married, you can combine your lifetime exemption with your spouses. We'll touch on that later under a concept called portability. So you really have almost $23 million um, that you can die with without paying or having to file a federal estate tax return potentially. So it's pretty huge. Very few people um, you come across will have a federal estate tax return filing requirement. However, our beloved Commonwealth, it's much more common because the Massachusetts state tax exemption is a million dollars and it's been a million dollars for a decade. This is a really easy number to get to because of the you know, incredible appreciation in real estate um, in Massachusetts in the past 
you know, few decades. Someone could have essentially a, a, a single family home in the greater Boston area and maybe a retirement account and be almost at a million. And then the filing requirement kicks in. Another important thing to, to know is that these filing requirements are based on the gross value of the estate. So I think I put an example in here later, you know, you could have just a, a house worth $1.2 million in a person's estate with a mortgage on it of $500,000. So really it's a net of 700,000. However, because you're over the million dollar filing threshold, you still have to file a return even though no estate tax would be due in any event. So scrolling down here. Um, I talk about gifting here on, on page two, we'll get back to that. So federally there is a estate and gift tax is one system. To the extent you make a taxable gift during life, which is one that's over $15,000 in a given calendar year, um, then you will, um, you, you would reduce your lifetime exemption. Well, I got a question here about the materials. When will we get the materials sent to us? Well, you absolutely should. And I will work with my, um, my dear companions at BVA to get them sent out to everyone on the list. So um, I'll see if Daniel can help me with that one. Um, I'll try to make a jump. Does, does no one have the materials or just some people don't have the materials? So I can, um, hello, this is Daniel. I can email those to everybody on the registrant list right now. Um, and you should have it by about 1215 if that works for everybody. Fire them off, please. This is this is good stuff they're missing here. It's my my sweat, blood, and tears on the page here. Um, all right. Well, we can we can go at it generally until they kind of come in. So I want to say I want to keep it kind of high level to start with. Um, so federally, you have the estate and gift tax are one one combined thing, and it sort of makes sense because the idea is that you cannot um, give away everything that you owned in, in your life on your deathbed and then say I had nothing in my estate. Um, so you have to track gifts as you make them during life federally. So if you have $11.58 million you can transfer and you make a gift of a million dollars, you can only die with 10.58 million before you start paying the tax. If you give away the whole $11.58 million during life, then you start paying the, the estate and gift tax federally as you go during life. Um, in Massachusetts, there's an estate tax, but there's no standalone gift tax. So if you gift in Massachusetts, you reduce your $1 million exemption that you can die with, but you don't pay a tax once you, you know, have gifted all the $1 million away. What happens is that you start paying tax on the first dollar um, in, your, in your estate in Massachusetts, as it were. This can be a really powerful way to reduce the, the tax owed in Massachusetts. Um, so, you know, generally, what, what is a, what is the taxable estate, right? If any of you folks sort of dabble in um, a little bit of my beloved probate, um, you know, you know there's probate and non-probate assets. So probate are just things in your individual name, like a bank account or a brokerage account, et cetera. Um, whereas something that's owned jointly, a tenancy, tenants by the entirety or owned in trust passes outside of probate. Um, for estate tax purposes, your taxable estate includes everything that um, the person had an interest in at the moment of death. So the outline goes through this basically by the schedules on the return, but what's included? Real estate, um, stocks and bonds, mortgages, notes and cash. Mortgages as in you hold the mortgage. You know, later on in life when I'm a private banker for my friends and you know, take mortgages on the house, those kind of mortgages, not the mortgage that you owe on your own property. Um, life insurance on the person's life. So if someone has a, you know, $20,000, $30,000 policy on them for funeral expenses, that does get included. Uh, what would not be included are things in what are called irrevocable life insurance trusts, also known as islets. That's more of a sophisticated estate planning type of trust, um, probably beyond, you know, our kind of high level fundamentals here. Uh, jointly owned property, uh, whether it's owned jointly with the spouse or with um, anyone else, that's includable. Um, and then transfers during decedent during the person's life with a retained interest. So this is a this is a big one. Um, this is essentially transfers and trust. Um, anything that's a revocable type of transfer. So anything you put in your revocable trust was going to end up on here. 
Also, if any of you are familiar with sort of um, elder law planning, the so-called Medicaid irrevocable trust, those trusts typically uh, or their income only trust during the person's life. And because of that retained income interest under section 2036 of the tax code, that's includable in your, um, in your gross estate. So pretty much everything in a Medicaid irrevocable trust or revocable trust is gonna be includable in your uh, taxable estate. Um, this thing called the general power of appointment, if you're not a tax nerd, this is, you know, what's a general power of appointment? Um, a power of appointment is, is a, a power that someone who creates a trust gives to someone in the trust, a power holder, to change where the property goes. It's sort of a great way for the person who creates a trust to say, hey, um, X, my spouse or my kid, when, you know, when you die by your will, you can change where all these assets go because the, you know, it might make sense to shift them up at that, that time. Maybe one grandkid's doing phenomenally well and doesn't need it and the other grandkids need it more. So um, they can change the disposition of a trust with what's called a power of appointment. But this is what's called a general power of appointment and that references the tax code directly. Um, a general power of appointment is when you can direct property to yourself, your creditors, or your estate or your estate's creditors. Those are the four, the big four. Um, if those four are not permissible um, donees of the power, then it's a not a non-general power appointment. We usually hear called a limited power appointment. Um, other major category here is annu um, annuities, IRAs, Roth IRAs. Those come on there. And then uh, your, your catch-all, which is the um, other miscellaneous property. This would be business interests. Uh, in my example, I have Daniel D. Decedens, very uh, nicely maintained 2001 Ford Focus. In my mind, it's yellow because he's a little bold like that, but you know, that's just me. And his, you know, his baseball card collection. Essentially, things don't fit anywhere else. Um, and so what's the rule? Um, how do you value things on an estate tax return? So the big, like the, the key, key thing to remember is all assets are va uh, valued as of um, their fair market value as of the decedent's date of death. So for some things, this is pretty simple. Um, a bank account's a good example. You know, what was the, the balance of your checking or savings account on the date of death? And typically you can get a statement, take a peek at it and um, figure it out. You know, if it's the end of the month and the person died, you know, on the 15th of the month, you, you back out anything that came after the 15th and et cetera. Um, there's some special rules to know. And these are in the outline, which you should be getting in one minute by my clock here at the latest. Um, and that is, publicly traded securities, mark, you know, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, et cetera. Um, that rule is it's the average of the high and low of the day's trading on the date of death. If the person passed away on the weekend, it's the average of the, you know, the Friday and the Monday, or if the market doesn't open until Tuesday, Friday and Tuesday or something. Um, so in that event, it's always going to be different than what a person sees on a, on a statement that they receive for a brokerage account or an IRA because those will always be based off closing values of the market. So I just tell this to people as a heads up, you know, the number is always gonna be slightly different um, when you actually receive it. Uh, I note that there's a special rule for what are called um, antiques, art, and other collectibles. Um, I don't have any of those yet, I hope to someday. But the, the rule is if, if an individual item or a collection is worth over $3,000, then um, the personal representative has to get a qualified appraisal essentially someone who's in the business of appraising those things uh, has to write an appraisal report and you would append that to your estate tax filing. I go into this outline, I mentioned a fair amount real estate because um, it's such a big issue in the estate tax world and the state administration generally, trying to get good marketable title to heirs, devisees, and beneficiaries. Um, but oftentimes you see when someone passes away, um, that the, the heirs, devisees, the beneficiaries are looking to, to sell the place or there's no reason to keep it. Maybe it's the old family home after months and dumpster loads of cleaning it out, they want to get rid of it or it's a rental property and no one wants to deal with it. And sometimes actually the, um, you know, a trust it's, itself will say, upon my death, please, you know, convert into cash my property at, you know, 123 Main Street um, as soon as it's practicable, something to that extent. So. With real estate, you have to also get a qualified appraisal by a licensed appraiser. 
nope, this is not a, um, this isn't an opinion of value from a realtor. It's actually got to come from a, a licensed appraiser. And they'll, you know, they'll do the various analyses and they'll compare to market analysis, um, similar sales, et cetera. Usually it's a big, you know, 40, 50 page report um, of, the, the, of the appraiser's estimate of the fair market value as a date of death. And that's what determines your um, value for real estate. But in the event that it's sold, there's all these wonderful cases out there federally that say essentially up to 15 months, a price that you receive, you know, in a valid arm's length transaction on a purchase and sale agreement, that sets your fair market value, which makes perfect sense. You know, some person come up off the street and said, I'll pay you, you know, $500,000 for grandma's house. Let's do it. Um, so that is allowable. And then instead of attaching the appraisal, you'd attach the, a copy of the purchase and sale. And I'll go over in a, a few moments a little bit about um, how to clear title to real estate in the estate tax context, because it's very big, especially in Massachusetts. Um, there's also some deductions, uh, like on all tax returns. So you can take funeral expenses and the, the costs of um, last illness. And this includes, you know, having a, a post services uh, luncheon or collation, as it were. Um, you can also do debts. Uh, any valid debt. So, you know, essentially no one passes away having paid every bill they have. You might even have a few hundred dollars in the credit card from groceries or something. That's one of my examples. That's a debt of the estate and that can be taken on the estate tax returns. Um, mortgages, any liens, you know, credit cards, those are all valid debts. Um, charges of administration can be taken, including, of course, attorney's fees, um, accounting fees, postage and filing fees, although I get a little finicky when people start sending me, you know, 35 cents for postage kind of things. I'm like, it's costing more to put this on the estate tax return than anything you'll get from it. But that's just my particular um, complaints. Um, filing fees for the probate court, et cetera, you can, you can take those. And those appraisal fees we just talked about, those, those appraisals you have to obtain, you can take a deduction for those. Um, there's a little bit of, a, not a gray area, but, um, as far as the cost administration with respect to real estate. So, you know, you have this real estate in the estate, maybe a, um, you know, a parent owned, but no one's living there. And so you, you have to pay, you know, the gas and the utilities, et cetera, um, maybe some property insurance to, to keep it up and sort of, well, how much of that can you take? Um, it comes back to a sort of a reasonableness standard. You know, what's a reasonable amount of time to deliver this property to the beneficiaries? So in Massachusetts, title to real estate vests automatically on debt, subject only to divestment for creditors. Um, so title essentially passes to the heirs as soon as the, the person dies. Um, however, you know, if it's been the family home for 40, 50 years, there could be a lot of stuff in there to go through. You really can't, you know, you couldn't really get in there and live there in a sense. So I typically say a few months is, is, is a fine to take, it's allowable, and the DOR doesn't seem to have an issue with it, but um, I, I caution against people being very aggressive with it and trying to take it for, you know, the whole nine months because that, that's beyond a standard of reasonableness. You could have gotten the thing cleaned out, you could have gotten in there. But you can take some of those expenses as well to reduce any estate tax owed. And another important one to note is the um, charitable, charitable bequests. So some people are very charitably inclined, which is great, um, and you can get a deduction for that but it has to be actually specified in the will or the trust. That's to say it directly. You know, I leave $50,000 to the Red Cross. It can't, the personal representative or uh, someone who's going to take the property can't make the donation on the decedent's behalf and have the estate receive a deduction. That's just, that's not how the rule works. Um, it's an important note too. I put down here on, um, on page one, well, actually let's do some screen share. I don't even know if you guys get your stuff yet. Um, all right, so you look down here under um, this practice note F right here, right? So essentially you can't double dip on deductions. It's sort of a um, consistent concept in the tax code. So you may be able to take a deduction on this one-time estate tax return um, and that versus the um, annual estate income tax return. So you can have an estate that is earning income over a period of years during administration. 
maybe it does own rental property as a big por uh, big portfolio and they have to file an annual form 1041. Well, if it's a, an estate tax return where there's no estate tax due because of marital deduction planning and the spouse the first to die, take it on the form 1041. Uh, similarly with, with medical deductions, um, you can take those on a personal return if they're over a certain amount, I believe it's 7.5% of AGI currently. So um, if you're not gonna get any tax benefit to it on the, um, on the 706, then take it on the form 1040, but, but in any event, never take it in both places. Uh, I've received a question from the audience uh, and it's asking about quarterly real estate taxes. So yes, you can take these. These are assessed as a debt against the, um, the decedent personally typically. And what you find is most cities and towns run on a fiscal year. So typically they're assessed um, June 1 for the entire year. So it's, it's allowable to take the, the balance of what's owed for those property taxes on the estate tax return as a debt of the decedent. Okay. All right. Um, so th those are the main categories of, well, not main, those are the, the categories of assets and deductions. Um, and then, so let me, let me just jump over before I would get into showing you how the estate tax return itself works to, to go over to the asset list. And like I said, these, these asset lists are just, they're key. I mean, every trust and estate attorney uses something, you know, similar. Um, this is our in-house proprietary one, as it were. Um, but, you know, essentially you want to break things down by category and these sort of mirror what's on the actual, um, the schedules on the, the 706 itself. Um, but, you know, your major ones, real estate, stocks and bonds, uh, life insurance, pension IRAs, annuities, um, bank accounts, and then miscellaneous. And then I did another page for just expenses. You know, I usually keep it in a separate tab and pull it over. Um, like I said, this kind of drives the whole boat with not just um, the estate tax, but also uh, estate administration. And, you know, conveniently, my, my decedent, Daniel D. Decedent, had pretty much one of every type of assets. We could look at it on actual return. But maybe the most, one of the most important parts of all this is, you know, you always want to note the form of ownership, how it was owned, because, you know, it's just going to determine how it passes, and then the includability of it. So an important rule to remember is, um, about jointly owned property. So there's a rule up here that jointly owned property um, is fully includable if you own it with anyone other than a spouse. If you own it with a spouse, only 50% is includable. But the important thing to consider too is only 50% gets reported. So if you remember at the beginning, I said you get, um, it's wherever your gross estate is. If you're over that million dollars in Massachusetts, you have to file. Um, well, if you have a, a $1.2 million house owned jointly with your spouse, you only report $600,000 on the return. So there's no filing requirement in that case. Um, whereas if you own other joint property, you pick up the whole thing. So it's just a, a thing to, to note. That's a very important one, qualified joint property. And then this Gallenstein rule over here, this will make you a total, total superstar if you're having dinner and drinks with any trust and estates attorney. It's a famous case that essentially says, if property was acquired pre-1977 and the decedent provided all the consideration, you can include 100% of it. Um, this can be important for basis step-up purposes. Uh, another note to, um, to, or an important thing to point out rather is the, um, the basis step-up as it were. So anything includable in your taxable estate um, gets a step-up in basis to its fair market value as a date of death. This is except for generally annuities and a few other things. It's a general rule. So what does that mean? Um, your, your family bought a house in 1962 for $10,000. It's now worth $1,010,000. Um, if your family gives that away during life to, to you, you know, to, to, the, to a child in the family, you take it as if you paid $10,000. If you turn around and sell it, you'll have tax uh, for, for $1 million, $10,000. You'll have capital gains tax of, 10, of $1 million, which will come out to about $288,000 approximately. If, the, if instead your family dies with it and you get it from their estate or the, you know, their trust was included on their estate, you take it at that $1,010,000. You might have to pay Massachusetts estate tax, but the effective rate of mass tax is about 10% on average. 
Um, whereas capital gains tax could be up to 20, 20%. So that difference between the two is, is just massive and it can lead to a huge, huge tax savings for the family. So it's, um, so getting the basis step up is, is huge. And you see that Gallenstein rule come up sometimes still because a property will have been purchased, you know, very long time ago, usually by, um, by parents, pre-1977, you can fully include it. Um, I wanted to note an important thing before we go through the return itself, and that's about um, estate tax lien releases or just estate tax liens generally. So um, Massachusetts puts an automatic lien on a decedent's entire taxable estate in the event that they may owe estate tax. Um, if a person doesn't have a million dollars in their taxable estate, then the person, the personal representative or the person in possession of the property can file an affidavit in the registry of deeds where the property lies saying, excuse me, the decedent owed no estate tax. And typically you'll file, you will um, record a death certificate as well. These serve to automatically release the Massachusetts estate tax lien. If the property is includable in someone's taxable estate and they do have to file an estate tax return, you, um, you list the property on the estate tax return. We'll look at that in a minute. And the Department of Revenue issues a certificate releasing Massachusetts estate lien. This used to be called the Form M792, but now it has a very long and cumbersome name, certificate releasing Massachusetts estate lien. Um, that lien, that certificate gets recorded in the registry of deeds instead of the affidavit, along with the death certificate, and serves the same function to show that the title is clear and to release the lien. Um, if you have a federally taxable estate, there's also um, lien releases that you obtain from the IRS, but um, it's just more, the IRS is much, much, much slower than, the, than our good old Department of Revenue in Massachusetts about issuing these lien releases and you know, just issuing closing letters on estate tax returns in general. It's very common to look in a file for a federal estate tax return and see four, five, six, seven letters to the IRS saying, please, please send us the closing letter so that we know you'll never bother us again. Um, where, where does this come up in, in practice administering your state? Is that that example that we spoke about earlier where um, the heirs want to sell the property during the period of administration. So um, you're in the issue where you have a, a mass taxable estate at least, or maybe a federally taxable estate as well, and you have to get the lien release to have, get good marketable title. What happens is the buyer's um, council comes along and they get a title examination on the real estate and they say, oh, you know, Daniel, Daniel D. Decedent owned this property. Um, he's dead, where's the lien releases? So you have to either file the return and get the release, but you might not be ready yet because you don't have all the information yet to prepare the return. Um, what you can do with the DOR is you can request a conditional release of the Massachusetts state lien. Um, what they'd like is for you to pay the tax at the time you request it. That's, you know, ideal. But oftentimes um, there might not be liquidity in the estate because maybe the only asset is that, that property. So what you can do is you can provide a, um, a HUD-1 settlement statement, closing disclosure, whatever type of document is going to be used in the closing, showing the Commonwealth of Massachusetts as a party to be paid out of the estate tax proceeds. And if you give the Department of Revenue um, that draft HUD settlement statement, closing disclosure, as it were, the purchase and sale agreement uh, and the deed, they will issue you the certificate releasing Massachusetts estate lien. Um, and they're pretty fast about it. Honestly, I, I usually get them in um, a, a day or uh, two or three days. So they're, they're pretty quick to turn those around so your closing won't get held up. Um, federally, however, much, much more um, work in, in the sense there's much more lead time involved. So uh, there's a list on page five of all the things you need, but the IRS themselves tell you, you gotta um, submit this application, this form 4422, at least 45 days before your anticipated closing. So I, you know, in the, the world of, of real estate, that fast paced world, um, that's a pretty substantial lead time. So if you're involved in the state, you want to have that in the back of your mind. If you have a federally taxable state, you have to, um, you have to apply for this lien release well ahead of time. Um, I have a, a, a colleague with whom I worked who had to escrow an entire $2 million of sale proceeds because that colleague was not aware of the federal estate tax um, lien release. Don't be that person. Uh, so, you know, 
like I said, real estate just it, it just seems to come up a lot in the states because it's for most I think most people who have taxable estates, uh, oftentimes real estate is the biggest asset in there, and people looking to sell it. So um, the estate tax preparer um, or the estate administration attorney has a role in there to make sure that that title gets cleared um, for estate tax purposes. Uh, one of the, the the last notes I hit here in the the overview is the um, it's a concept of portability. This is another one that will make you popular at the uh, the cocktail party, but it's it's pretty basic. What portability is is this this it's a federal concept, not a Massachusetts concept. And what what it says is that um, any amount of your lifetime estate and gift tax exemption that is not used when you die can be given to a surviving spouse, and they can combine it. So um, if I die with um, you know right now probably about 42, you know, we'll call it $58,000 in assets. Don't have that. But if I did, um, I could give $11 million to my wife and then she would have, she would have that to use when hopefully she had a better second marriage and was fantastically wealthy. She could report that on her estate tax uh, return when she dies. So um, the way it works is you have to file a federal form 706 in order to, um, to elect portability. If you have to file a federal estate tax return, it has to be done on a timely filed 706. So that's within nine months, or if you get the six month exception, the 15 months. If you're just filing a federal estate tax return to elect portability, you didn't have to file it otherwise, you have up to two years from the person's date of death. There's this um, revenue procedure. These are um, essentially proclamation issue from the IRS of how they're going to treat all these tax issues. There's one called Rev Proc uh, 2017-34. It says you got two years to do it. So um, it's a pretty nice cushion. And if, essentially, if you have to file a Massachusetts estate tax return for a, for a decedent, you necessarily have to essentially do a federal one. So it, you should always just send in the federal form to elect portability. Um, so let's see, let's make sure I didn't skip anything really critical here. Uh, okay. No, I think I hit the main highlights. Like I said, I'm trying to keep it, not get too, I'm gonna take you into the weeds now, but you know, I always wanna start high level. Remember that not everyone is as passionate about estate and gift tax as I am. But maybe you will be someday. Um, all right, what I want to do is hopefully now you all have this asset list, but if not, I'll, I'll pop it up and I just want to explain how it, how it works a little bit here. And then I can actually show you the return and how that flows through. So please allow me to share some screen over here. All right. So the asset list. Okay. So like I said, um, we're working kind of left to right here. So you start out with, um, I started my real estate and my different categories, et cetera. My first column, my fair market value assets, typically this is gonna be 100% um, of what the value is worth. I just wanna know what is, this, what is this asset worth? I don't care about the person's fractional interest. I just want that raw value. What is the fair market value date of death? And then I can do my math off there. This guy was so great too. I mean, everything he owned ended in triple zero. So you know, really, really a gentleman um, for estate tax purposes. So. Um, he owns the, the building that the BBA is in, a 50% interest, um, conveniently. Worth, um, one, it's worth $1.6 the entire property, and he, but he only owns a 50% tenancy in common interest. So on my gross 706 value, this is where I start doing a little bit of math. Um, he only owns a 50% tenancy in common interest. He'll only pick up $800,000 on the return. If he only owned a quarter of it, $400,000, and so forth. Um, he owns the place next door because that was really convenient for my uh, instructional purposes. So he owns 100% um, of that in his trust, and so he gets the whole value of it. He owns a brokerage account with his son, Daniel. Um, so this, this account is, is TOD, or sorry, Daniel's a Samuel's son, that uh, is the person who gets it. So this is a TOD account, payable on death account. You do see these a lot. So these would be sort of deemed individual property with a transfer feature. This was just to kind of get it on the schedule I wanted to get it on, but make it avoid probate. Um, 
you'll commonly see people own individual stocks or um, you know um, certificated stocks, maybe old ones. The, a lot of times these inadvertently end up in probate um, because they never get transferred to a trust. And that's what happened to our friend Daniel here. So he's got 600 shares of Apple. And that price, that share price of $319.78, that's the average of the, the day's high and low trading, as I was saying before. Um, this is a, he's got a life insurance policy with John Hancock for $25,000. You know, give me a very nice funeral and have a nice party afterwards sort of policy. Um, then he has this MetLife policy owned on the life of his daughter. So he's this one a lot of times too. So this isn't reportable on Schedule D for life insurance on the decedent's life. This falls under a miscellaneous property. This is another one that can often end up in probate as well. Be a little tricky to deal with them. People get insurance policies on their, their kids or the life of another, and those never make it to trust or anything, and they never get transferred. So um, just a little oddball one to get on your radar. Then we get some IRAs, the traditional IRA, the Roth IRA. We had beneficiaries, so these are just going to be reported at full value. Um, bank accounts. This is where I started playing with jointly owned property for a little bit to sort of see how this works. So, you know, he owned a property jointly with Sammy's spouse or a bank account. So... You know, the gross value is $23,000. But when you report that in the, in the um, return, it'll, it'll actually pop up at $11,500. So you only include 50% of the value for what's called qualified um, joint property. Then he's got a joint account with Donna Daughter, his savings account at Bank of America. This gets reported at the full value because it's, you know, it's owned with anyone other than a spouse. Now, you might ask, uh, Jim, what if, you know, Donna daughter actually put some of the money in there. In that case, you can always you can provide an affidavit of, of contribution, you know, and establish that Donna put the money in there, and then you would only report what Daniel D. decedent put in there. So you know there is a um, escape hatch, as it were, for the actual mechanics of what happened with these transfers. So if the, the, the decedent didn't actually put the money in there, you don't have to report it essentially. But you have to prove that he didn't put the money in there. The presumption is towards the 100% includability for the decedent. Uh, then we got a revocable trust account, and then we have a certificate of deposit. Um, all, all the older folks love CDs. They, they hate interest rates, so, you know, they're getting that sweet, you know, three-eighths of a percent, and you got to calculate that interest to pay in the butt. Um, then we have my sweet yellow Ford Focus worth $500 that Daniel took to only to church, bingo, and uh, the grocery store, so very, very low mileage. And then we have this baseball card collection. I want to give you an example of a collectible. Um, to put on Schedule F. It would, that would need an appraisal to get that whole collection appraised. So, you know, once you get the values in the, the first column, you do a little math on the 706 um, value and then the actual value reported, which will, you know, have those joint interests down here. This is where you get what's going to be your, that's your number right there. That's your gross estate. So that's going to be, do I have to file? Are we over a million dollars? We're well over a million dollars. We have to file in mass. Do we have to file federally? No, we don't, not in 2020, because um, our state is substantially below the, the threshold, or, you know, eight million below, essentially. Um, and then I did some expenses, as an example, on this sheet. So we got uh, McGrath's funeral home, that's in East Boston, I'm from East Boston, I had to go with, you know, where the Cassiello's go. Um, I think my post-services collation was also with Gibelli's, which is an old Italian restaurant in East Boston, very um, mom and poppy kind of one. My monument engraving, for my, my funeral marker for him, my appraisal costs. I had to keep some insurance on 16 Beacon Street for my friends at the BBA. And um, then of course, your attorney's fees, Christian and Dolan, and then my, my one credit card is an example of the debt. So again, my, if, if you can get some kind of list together like this, if this, if your understanding of the assets is at this point and you have information for everything, you're, you know, I, I can do an entire estate tax return from just this. And that's, in fact, how I do them. And that's how I did this one was I start out by laying this all out, getting this complete, and then doing the return itself is a little bit easier. I'm going to pop back my ugly mug, make sure no one's got any questions. Okay, yes. Okay. Oh, a, a question from a, um, a dear friend. On uh, obtaining the expedited release of lien, are you getting at least one to three days by filing on the DOR website, Mass Tax Connect? Uh, the answer to that question is yes, on Mass Tax Connect. So pretend not to um, 
you can file by mail or even in person at the estate tax unit in Chelsea, Massachusetts. But um, I always file my returns online. So you can, you create an account with Mass Tax Connect, which is the DOR's website for electronic tax filings. Um, first, you wanna get a form M2848 signed by the personal representative or the person in possession of the property, authorizing you to, um, to act on their behalf with the Department of Revenue. But once you get that authorization, you make an account for the estate. Uh, all you really need is the decedent social security number, often on the debt certificate, though that sometimes it's partially redacted, um, and the information of the personal representative. You make the account, and now you can, it's um, once you enter into your online account for the estate, you, there's a little um, link on the side that says, apply for a lease of lien. And yes, um, once filed, once you have all the documentation in hand to file, Sometimes you're waiting for that closing disclosure or settlement statement because you're getting it from the buyer's attorney. Um, but once you have it all submitted, typically the turnaround time has been, for me, um, two to three days. They're very, very quick on those. Um, but not the feds. The federal government, the IRS think they're all on vacation. They're, um, they're, they're very tough to get a hold of these days. Um, so yeah, so once you have that asset list all, all together, now you're like you're ready ready to go that's the um that's the big thing is, is having all the information together and again fair market value is a date of death you get it there's, there's definitely significant lead time on qualified appraisals um usually for real estate so you got to budget a couple of months for that i would say realistically um do that obviously during the coronavirus it's been tougher people don't want to you know go in the house type of thing um so the lead time's even more but that's usually your big big thing um and the other key is you can't, um, people can't always find statement information. And one of the tensions in being, um, so doing a state administration is that you can give all the stage counts in the world that you want, but in the end, you're not the personal representative, uh, himself or herself. And that's the person that the brokerage house, the bank, the financial institution, that's the person that they're going to talk to. And oftentimes they have to get appointed in probate court first so that the the bank or brokerage house will talk to them. Once they're appointed, they can typically, the, um, the institution will take a letter from the PR authorizing them to talk to the attorney so that we can chase down the information. But then there's also, you know, cost sensitivity thing. I mean, who wants to pay? Um, well, we attorneys want to get paid to do whatever, I guess, but who wants to pay um, me to sit on the phone with, um, you know, the 1-800 number to a bank. I mean, I guess maybe I would want to pay for that because Lord knows it's like nothing but robots these days to try to get through to them. But there's this, there's a slight challenge in that the, the lawyer could be the, the greatest attorney in the world, but you know, you, you try to call Fidelity and say, Hey, I need, what was the value of this IRA on, you know, six one, they'll say, Hey, you know, are you, you're not a beneficiary pound sand. Um, if you are the beneficiary, they often will, they'll often give the claims package, and information to the named beneficiary, if, if you do have the IRA named beneficiary in that case. But as far as individually titled other accounts, brokerage, et cetera, you need someone to get appointed to kind of get that information. All right, so now we have all this stuff together. We, we, we've got, you know, a good 45 minutes of um, estate tax knowledge in our lives now. So, you know, how do we actually do it? Well, um, you know, the real answer is, definitely tax software. Um, it would not be easy to do by hand, but we will do it. Um, at the end of my, um, my materials, you'll see, this is, I, I, live, I live by this thing. Uh, page 12 of the July 1999 revision to the, of the federal estate tax return. So uh, Massachusetts, when you file the um, estate tax return, you in Massachusetts, you have to provide a version of the 1999 federal estate tax return. So in 2000, the, the federal government changed the estate tax laws um, and you used to get a one-to-one -one credit for state estate taxes and they changed that to a deduction. This was very confusing to all the state legislatures. So many of them like Massachusetts said, uh, just do it like you did in 1999. So that's why you have to understand that this exists, but that's also what the actual amount of tax you have to pay is based off of, based off these tables. I'll try to show it to you quickly. Um, let's see, I got a question from an attendee. Um, 
Do you verify ownership type or go off of what PR says? If a Nantucket house was bought before the internet era, so deed is not online. And didn't that register deed burn down at one point? Um, how do you obtain a copy of the deed? Um, this is where, um, if you're really having trouble getting a copy of the deed, you would, you would tell the person you need to get a title examination. So all the title companies would do that. Often um, the firm would have referral sources. You know, we work with First American Title a lot, uh, a group called McDonough and Novak who does this. But usually a somewhat reason, a reasonable fee, a few hundred bucks, they will do a, 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 run, a title examination to establish the, the chain of title. Um, I never, I, I would go off what someone says at the outset, but you got to show me that statement, you know, show me how it works. Um, for realty, this can be very complicated because it can often not be deeds. In fact, the preferred practice in Massachusetts is not to do a deed from an estate to the person who's the um, heir from the estate. The real estate buyer in Massachusetts doesn't want to see a deed until the heir to the estate then subsequently conveys the property. And then it, when they convey it to a third party, they'll say, for my title, see probate docket number, whatever, for Daniel P. Decedent here. So real estate is very murky. The other stuff should be, you should kind of be able to tell a lot of times with just a statement and how it, it comes in the mail and the names on the top of the statement. Sometimes you want the, not just what's in the envelope though, but the full statement. You can see other designations like the, the TO, the, the transfer on death and payable on death can be a little tricky. Um, all right, I hope that was somewhat helpful. Um, all right, let me take you to the, uh, the piece de resistance, the uh, actual estate tax return that I was, I was slaving over in the estate tax kitchen. So I'm gonna pop over to that. So I gave you the whole shebang. Um, we use ProSystems FX for our software. It's very common accounting software and it's, um, it's great for estate tax returns as well. So um, what I did was I just did a whole return as if this, this person actually, actually passed away and, and reported it. So um, what you see at the front is this is the federal one. You can tell because it says um, 2019 here, right? So this is the federal form 706 and it looks like other tax returns, you know, you get the name of the deceased person, who's the executor, et cetera. And here's all the, the, the kind of summaries. What's the total estate? What are the deductions, et cetera? So this return was done um, because my model decedent here had, had trust planning to make it such that um, his assets would qualify for the unlimited marital deduction. So if you, can, if you do estate planning with marital deduction planning, you, you're married, um, can generally you can make it such that you never pay estate tax on the first debt. If you notice right here, my taxable estate is one, my tenant tax estate is $1 million. Wow, that worked out great. That's because I literally, um, you, you put the amount in trust, um, a marital deduction trust called a Q-tip trust for the exact amount to totally wipe out estate tax on the first debt. That's why that number is there. I'll show you how the estate tax would have worked if um, Daniel D. Decedent was the second spouse to die or just a, you know, a single person. So, this is your, your page one is a summary. It's generated by what you do on the other schedules. Um, you have to do a lot of, um, you got to give him a lot of information. So um, notice he was a professional model. That's how he made all his money. This is this, lots of bad jokes if you really look through it because I, um, I, I just have bad jokes. Um, and you list out the, the beneficiaries. That's when there's too many. That's why it says C statement one because um, the list, it basically got too long. And you have to tell them some, some things like, um, did you have any, um, did you make one of these transfers? When it says section 2035, 2036, 2037, 2038, that's the estate section of the, the estate tax code. And we did because we made a transfer and trust. So we ticked yes. Did we make a trust? Yeah, we did. Um, did we have any partnerships? No, we didn't have any business interests. You know, just sort of um, informational reporting here. Then there's a summary of all the schedules that come, comes in here and it shows you what's on each line. You actually fill this in exactly when you report for um, Massachusetts. There's this concept called alternate value table very quickly in section 2032 cap A of the um, state tax code. And that just basically says you can, you can value everything as of six months as of date of death or the date of sale um, for an estate, alternate valuation. Um, but it has to reduce the, the overall estate tax and you have to apply it to everything in the estate. You can't cherry pick uh, what you have. So sometimes there's a big downturn in, in the market. Maybe someone has a lot of securities, like just happened in, 
in March and you want to use an alternate valuation date, it can be a tactic to drive down the state tax a little bit. Um, there have the deductions over here, et cetera, and you get your sort of your, you know, this is your summary of stuff. Um, this is pretty interesting. This is your um, portability right here we talked about. So here, you know, Daniel had uh, 11.58 million and he's only getting taxed on a million because he's getting the deduction for his marital property. And so he's got 10.58 million to pass on. However, his Sammy spouse will have to pick up anything that received the, um, what's in her, what's called Q-tip trust, because that becomes includable in the second to die spouse estate. It makes sense. You got a break on the first death. So now you have to include it in the second to die estate. Um, all right, let's go on. Now we're getting into the um, good stuff. This is my statements. Watch me scroll, this is exciting. All right, real estate, Schedule A, this is a big one. This is where some nice robust reporting is important. You know, you wanna, you wanna tell them what, what the property is. There's a 50% tenancy in common interest. Where was it located? It's recorded in the subject registry of deeds, date of the deed, the book and the page. And then, you know, you give them, uh, you tell them there's a, you attach a copy of the deed and a qualified appraisal. In Massachusetts, you do have to provide a copy of the deed with the filings for, um, you have to, sorry, the deed that shows the person's interest, the decedent's interest. So you have to make sure you have that. You're gonna need it for the lien release anyways. Um, scrolling down, now we got some stocks and bonds. So we get the Fidelity brokerage account. When you have an entire brokerage account, you can value it all as one. Um, and there's software that all of us um, trusted estates nerds use, very common called eval that pulls these fair market values of the data debts. So you have to do everyone by hand. Um, and you put that all in there. But the Apple one I just did by hand because it had 600 shares of stock. So you actually put the unit value in there. Again, the, excuse me, the idea is that you want a you know, robust disclosure here. This is everything the person had. I'm giving you everything you need person reviewing this return. Please give me a closing letter and um, you know, let me go in peace. We got um, my CND that Daniel D. Decedent had because I need an example to stick on the schedule. Um, because everything else is joint owned and trust. Again, you just, you know, important that there. Then we get Schedule D. Remember I said, this is only insurance on Daniel's life, right? This does not include the one that was owned on his daughter's life, which ends up on Schedule F. Um, go down here, Schedule E. Schedule E is pretty interesting. Um, I mean, relatively speaking. This is where you see the, the jointly owned property thing, right? So this is the one he owned with Sammy's spouse worth 23,000. So I put in there 23,000, but the reporting will automatically say you include 11.5. 11, 11 so that's why qualified joint property is sort of special in that if it's qualified joint, it won't take you over the threshold. It's not like the mortgage example where, you know, you have a $1.2 million property with a $500,000 mortgage. Here you actually report the, the half interest as it were. And then you have the um, other joint interest, the one he owned with his daughter. Here, um, we're saying that Donna's daughter didn't have any contribution, so he picks up the whole thing. Then we have Schedule F, miscellaneous property. Oh, I didn't take the box. See, look, I caught myself. Should have ticked that box. Um, and that's going to get rejected. The whole It's all, it's ruined, guys. I ruined it. Um, but anyways, here's where you report the other stuff. The car, the life insurance policy, the, the antiques, and the appraisals. Um, this is where we get um, the good stuff, and that's um, Schedule G. So you'll see it's a lot of people have trust planning. If you have a revocable trust or a medical irrev, here's where you start laying it out. So I have my, um, my spiel here I always put. He made the trust. I referenced the section, the code section, because again, I, I don't really have a lot of friends anymore. Probably fewer by the day. Um, but you want to explain where this comes from. And that's all about the asset. So it owned the, the real estate. Where's my continuation schedule? There it is. Sorry. Um, it owned this real estate, and then it had this bank account. And then we get the annuities. So this is my traditional IRA and my Roth IRA. Um, now we've got everything. Now we start getting deductions. We've got our funeral expenses. We've got our attorney's fees. You're allowed to do estimated attorney's fees, which is nice because usually um, just because you've done the uh, estate tax return, usually you're not even close to done yet with the administration. So um, you can do estimated, usually add a little bit more and then get a little more deduction for, um, for the family. And then... Um, there it is, Javelli's in East Boston. And then you have the debts. I just took a, the basic um, credit card debt here, 250. And net losses during administration or expenses incurred 
and missing property not subject to claims. So this is a little um, fine point. There's on Schedule J, there's expenses occurred in diminishing property subject to claims. So is there a claim against the estate or not? There may not be. If there's a claim against the estate, it goes on J. If there's no claim, it goes on L. Um, I guess I ran out of steam I should have gave. Oh, I gave one down here. So this is net losses. Net losses is, you know, that's a business, don't worry about that. Um, here's my, my appraisal services. This is my guy I always work with um, in my shop, Chesson Appraisal. Brad Stern, good guy, he'll take care of you. Um, he should send me a bottle of wine after all the ones I've sent him. Um, and then the property insurance here. And that's basically everything. And here's the interesting, really interesting part to kind of wind up on here, and I'll show you the numbers at the end. This is Schedule M, bequest to surviving spouse, et cetera. This is your Q-tip trust, right? So this is the, um, this is key language here. Feel free to crib this. Um, basically, whatever amount necessary to wipe out the estate tax in case there's any proceeding later on. So this was the amount we needed exactly to get to that million dollars. Um, it doesn't include the things that passed her directly. So she got the life insurance, um, the checking account, and the Roth IRA. Um, but then this, this amount goes in this Q-tip trust. And that Q-tip trust is going to be includable in Sammy's spouse's estate because there was a deferral already. Um, the mass return is ugly as sin um, and just basically imports for everything else. I'll pop this up over here. Oh, it's all right. Jumped ahead. It looks like it's, it's very much a stripped down thing. It does not have schedule by schedule reporting. Um, it's just a summary. And because we only had a million dollars, we owe zero. And then... Um, What's very important here is this is your um, page five, part seven. This is how you get the lien releases. If you fail to fill this part out, then the, the, the DOR just won't issue the lien releases. In practice, I did just have an estate where this happened where someone did mail it in and didn't do an estate tax turn online before I got the case. And the DOR was willing to just take this page and release the, issue the lien releases without having to refile an entire return. So you might not, you know, get caught doing the entire tax term, which is nice. And now behind this is the 706 as it existed in 1999, right here. So this is, um, this has to be filed. Good tax offer will generate this, but if not, you have to get this one to give to mass. This is the one that, that, that goes into the DOR, not the one at the top. Well, they're exactly, they're almost exactly the same. You see all the same schedules, A, B, C, D, et cetera little bit of difference in formatting, but generally the same. Um, but that's how you, the Massachusetts estate estate tax is based off of what was the estate tax in 1999. So that, as I hop over to the last page over here, is this guy right here. It's the last thing I'll show you. So usually you're on table B. Sometimes if an estate is just over a million, you don't come to this table. You end up over here, but that's a rare circumstance. But this is where we end up. So if we apply this to Danny Decedent's estate, what you do is you take the adjusted estate. So on my asset list, that's the $3.49 million. You deduct 60,000. Why? Because Congress said to. Um, and then you get your federally adjusted taxable estate. That's for me, 3.432 million over here. Can I zoom in for you? Oh, I can't. Look. Oh, because I'm not using the laptop keyboard. Sorry, guys. I don't get out much. All right. Ooh. So that's your adjusted taxable estate. So if you pop back over to this guy over here, oh, there we go, wrong one. Um, you're in this band right here. So you pay 190,000 automatically, and then you pay 9.6% on the amount by which the adjusted taxable estate is above $3,040,000. So when you come over here, it's 190 base. It's um, the credit X is 37,000, and if he if, if Daniel D. Decedent was second to die, that's what he would have paid is 228. I just want to show you how that worked. That's the, you know, you your hand calc it. Um, I always just do the calculation myself. The tax software has never been wrong, but there'll be that, I don't know, that one day when there's a ghost in the machine, I want to make sure my stuff ties out. And like I said, my, my asset list is my, um, my estate tax Bible. So I, it's, it's just nice to have one there so I have a, a sense of what that's all worth. Um, anyways, so that's my, um, my one hour, everything I could possibly unload on you about preparing estate tax returns.
Um, I feel greatly enriched for sharing this hour with you. This is the highlight of my day. Um, my children are running wild upstairs. Clients are probably coming for me with pitchforks, so having a second to share knowledge with people if they're interested in it, I'm always happy to do it. Um, Daniel told me that there's a little bit of extra time for questions if anyone has one. Um, no question is too strange or, or out there. Uh, if I know it, I'm, I'm happy to tell you. And um, if something comes up later, um, my contact information is on the top of the, the outline materials. You know, feel free to uh, shoot me an email, give me a call. If you have some burning estate tax question, like I said, I, I love to answer them. And it's, um, again, it's always a good test of your knowledge. If you can answer the, the question that other people have. So um, with that said, feel free, take a run at me. Um, and if not, you know, the mass has ended, go in peace. It's up to you. And I'll, hopefully Dana will jump in here and save me with the shepherd's curve. Oh, question, question. Okay. Thank you. Oh, that was just, it was just a nice thing. You're very welcome um, to your questioner for my time. Um, thanks for, thanks for that. All right, so if there are no outstanding questions, we'll go ahead and close here. Uh, thank you very much to our participants for joining and to our speaker for such a great and informative program. Uh, so we did send out the materials during uh, this webinar itself, but we'll also be uh, sending them out to you again, along with the link to the recording for this program in the next couple of days. Uh, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out either to myself or to Jim. Uh, thank you all very much for joining us, and we hope that you'll join us for another webinar soon. Awesome. And um, thank, thanks so much, um, Daniel, for setting up and hosting it, and thanks to everyone who came. And um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So uh, take care, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you all.